Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a message from our sermon series in Isaiah. If you open with me to Isaiah chapter 5, and I want to show you a little something from verse 1, and then we'll pray and read the chapter together. But what I want to show you has to do with... um, This is probably the case in this church, actually. I should have thought of exactly who it is, but there's probably three generations. I don't mean of a biological family, but let's say Scott is sitting over there and Mike, who's sitting over there, led Scott to Jesus. And Mike, who led Scott to Jesus, also knows that sitting just over here, there's Darren, who led Mike to Jesus, who led Scott to Jesus. Three generations. The, the, as far as we know, the first book that was written about how to preach, the, the first book that has survived that was written about how to preach, was written by a dude named Irenaeus. And he was discipled by a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was led to Jesus by the Apostle John, those three generations. And in this little book, we don't even have all of it. It's called On the Apostolic Preaching by Irenaeus. He takes a little gloss on Isaiah 5 verse 1, which says, let me sing for my beloved. And he says what has deeply touched me. He said, that is the preacher's verse. Because the preacher is singing or so, to, so speaking eloquently for another, for his beloved. And if the preacher's heart is in the right place, the only thing the preacher wants is for his beloved to become your beloved. So that in the singing, or so to speak, the, the, the eloquent speaking of preaching, my beloved, who is Jesus Christ, would become your beloved. Let me sing for my beloved. Let's pray. We'll read Isaiah 5. Lord Jesus, how I praise you that by sovereign grace you are my beloved. I never would have loved you unless you loved me first. And I never would have found you more attractive than my sin unless you had changed my heart. How I praise you that you are now my beloved by your sovereign grace. And I pray now that as I sing of my beloved, that you would become beloved by every soul gathered here. Amen. Verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah 5 are a song about the vineyard of the Lord. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. That's the end of the pretty part of the song. When he says that 
The vineyard owner dug it and cleared it of stones. He planted it with choice vines. He did a lot of work to clear the field, and he got the most expensive seed that he could get. When he mentions the watchtower in verse 2, don't picture a, a little shack. That's a permanent structure that took great engineering and great expense to build, and the wine vat also. And after he did all of that, he looked for it to yield grapes but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, now we see what the song's really about, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, it shall be devoured, I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up, and I will also command the clouds that they never rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Sounds exactly like Jesus after he tells a story, and then he says, by the way, the field, that's your heart. The seed, that's the preaching of the word. He just, he just lays out what the parable is. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah and his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. This song is about the question, what more could God have done for Israel? The answer is, no more. He did everything. And the rest of the chapter is answering the question, what worse outcome could Israel have yielded? And the answer is no worse. Her rebellion is horrific. I don't really like the translation wild grapes in verse 2 and in verse 4 because uh, something well, in our, in our nomenclature, something organically grown or wild grown is uh, more expensive and enhanced. <laughs> like, she asked me to get honey, and I just got honey that was $2. No, no, no. Get the local organic honey that's $11. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> so, if something grows wild, it's better for us, but this is actually the Hebrew, bayash, means stink. And so a literal translation would be, but it yielded stink fruit, foul-smelling fruit that was no good. When he talks about Israel's society in the years of Uzziah, it's going to sound a lot like contemporary American society. It says in verse 7, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. Justice, remember Romans 13? Justice is when governing authorities quickly and righteously punish evil and protect the innocent. He looked for justice, but instead he found bloodshed. Bloodshed is when individuals in the society murder and wrong one another and nothing is done about it. In the second half, I looked for righteousness, but behold, all I heard was an outcry. Righteousness represents in this context shalom in our relationships. Greed doesn't enable the rich to abuse the poor. Uh, violence and power doesn't enable the powerful to wrong the weaker. 
That's righteousness. And yet, though he looked for that, behold, all he heard was the outcry of the poor who were being ground into the dirt unjustly by the powerful greedy who were ignoring the law of God. What worse could God's people have done? He says in verse 4, you got to watch out when God says this, uh, what more could I have done? And he actually asks us in verse 3 to judge between God and Israel. You judge between everything God has done and everything Israel has done. This comes down to us. This comes down to you in maybe you speak it out loud, but I'm pretty sure you speak it in your heart even if you don't speak it out loud. When you judge between your failures, your sins, and what more God could have done. And we all make that judgment wrong. If only my parents had been different. If only my circumstances had been a little better. If only I hadn't got stuck with that spouse. If only uh, the last church I was in wasn't so bad. If only God had closed that door sooner. If only God had opened that door and answered a prayer. And I don't discount the difficulty of being in a bad church or a hard marriage or being raised by parents who sinned against you. All, all, all of those things are, are in God's hand and, and he, he, can, he can help you through them. He can heal the brokenhearted. But if you really want to lay down what is my excuse for my lack of loyalty to God and my lack of obedience to God, you're not going to find blame on God's side. God is holy, God is good, and we are without excuse. None of our failings are God's fault. The reason is crystal clear. What more could God have done? Nothing. What worse could God's people have done? The answer, likewise, is just about no worse. Because that, then beginning in verse 8, we find these six woes against Israel, and it's sobering to add up Israel's woes and to see them all around us. I think historically this described Uzziah's reign where Israel was somewhat prosperous economically but was unjust and unrighteous socially and morally. And it's sobering to add up these woes and find them all around us. In verse 8, we'll read of possessions and wealth. In verse 11, we'll read of pleasures, drink, or in our day, legalized cannabis. In verse 19, we'll read about a God-excluding worldview where what I see is what is and what God says is nothing. In maybe the zenith or the low point of the chapter in verse 20, we will say, our society is calling everything evil good, thumbs up, like. And our society is calling everything good, evil, thumbs down, cancel. We'll see the collapse of the entire judicial system in verse 23. And then as we read it, I'd ask you to notice the beauty of the irony of the poetry in the prophecy because the judgments always fit the crimes. Verse 11 and 12, he's going to say you're running around and getting drunk. And then he's going to say what you end up with is an unquenchable thirst. 
in verse 8. He's going to say you're greedy and you buy all of this land. And by chapter, verse 16 or 17, he's going to say all that land that you spent so much money on, now the wild animals just graze on it. It's worth nothing. Let's read the rest of the chapter. It says in verse 8, Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitants. Ten acres of vineyards shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield an ephah. To explain that, it's a, it doesn't mean that if you have a larger house than somebody else, you're in sin, or if you have a, a beautiful house, you're necessarily in sin. This is talking about God's law from Leviticus 25, where God said, this land that I'm giving you, Israel, is my land, and I'm giving it to you, and I'm allotting it to the families, to the tribes, so that each tribe has enough. And it was a, it was a civil law, so to speak, of God's design so that there would basically be no permanent underclass in Israel. Everyone would have a home, and everyone would have a patch of ground on which to grow their own food and the dignity of working with their own hands. If Leviticus 25 had been followed, I truly believe there would have been no extreme generational poverty in, in, in Israel. It would have been prevented by following God's law. And yet this is saying their greed got the best of them and they blew past God's limitations and their greed caused them to violate his law and create a permanent underclass. We go on, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. You see the irony? You say, you, you just open up your throat and you just pour the whiskey down. Hell has opened its mouth to receive you, he says there. The nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe. To those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. 
Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, and as the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, and their blossom go up like dust, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts, and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked. Their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger had not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for nations far away, and he will whistle for them from the ends of the earth. Can't whistle. Can you whistle? That's what God's going to do. The funny thing about verse 26 is that this is talking about basically a proto-Armageddon where all of the powerful economic forces of the earth are called together. And if we were watching a movie about something like Armageddon or we were reading a spy novel about some international deal, there would, it would, be, there would be a big buildup of ambassadors and economies and the weapons of war being manufactured and shipped across lines. When God wants to call Armageddon, he just snaps his fingers, he just whistles. It's like nothing. That's what he's saying. This goes with Isaiah saying in chapter 40, all of the nations are as a drop in the bucket. This goes with Isaiah also saying in chapter 40 in several other places, Joe Biden, Putin, you, me, we're grasshoppers. Just a pile of ants on a little sandy hill. It says in verse 26 that he'll whistle and they'll come speedily. None is weary, none stumbles. In verse 27, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows are bent. Their horses' hoofs seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion, like young lions they roar. They growl and seize their prey, they carry it off. None can rescue. They will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks at the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. If I could just draw your attention, I guess, from all this poetry to verses 18, 19, and 20, and 21. I think that's the, that's the core. He says in verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. The Hebrew, the literal Hebrew is instructive here. He says, Woe to those who look good in front of their own face. That's curious. Woe to those who look good in the front of their own face. Question, how can you get in front of your own face? It can't be done. I'll tell you how it can be done. You can become so arrogant, so sort of chin forward, chest out, that... You, you almost walk in front of yourself into your own blindness. The, the, the blindness of your pride leads you on to do the most ridiculous things. Perhaps this happened this week. One of the best things about being in church is that you now have friends 
who love God more than they love you. And this enables your friends to really love you. One of the best things about being in church is that you are now in proximity of relationship to people who will speak the truth to you in love and who will not fear your reaction, right? So perhaps this week, you had the blessing of having a friend or a pastor or an elder speak the truth into your life and a word of rebuke, a word of challenge. And perhaps it is the case that when your friend rebuked you or challenged you, what you said was, nope, I know myself better than he does. I know myself better than she does. And you looked good in front of your own face. And the consequence will be disaster. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes, shrewd in their own sight. Verse 18, what are those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes? Verse 19 is a, is a sarcastic taunt against the God of heaven. Verse 19 is the kind of verse that if it is spoken out loud, you should run away because the lightning bolts are coming. There are some people who give no thought to God. They're not interested in the Bible. They, they give no thought to God. Then there are other people who look into the Bible for stuff to mock. That's what this is talking about. They actually want to learn enough about God to make God look like a joke. And then he says in verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe. Woe to those who devour the poor. You see, what happens here is that sin is unreasonable and therefore sin uh, takes away your reasoning. So when you are in sin, it becomes... Uh, almost impossible for you to see reality the way it really is. That's what sin does. When you're in sin, you're unable to draw the right conclusions about reality because your, your wantings and your cravings, James 1 says your lustings, have corrupted and deceived your own reasoning. Sin is unable to make a right, rational, reasonable response to reality because sin is stupidity enhanced by stubbornness. And if you are stupid or ignorant, but you're soft and teachable, there is hope. But if you are stupid and ignorant and you are arrogantly hard and closed to all other input, then there is no hope. That's when, verse 14, hell has opened up its mouth and it's in the process of swallowing you up. And so he actually says in verse 20 that evil is called good and good is called evil and darkness is called light and light is called darkness and the moral code has been reversed. And so in the day of Uzziah, as in 
my day. Sin is protected and defended by governing authorities in all of their unrighteousness and what is good and light and wholesome is threatened with incarceration and silenced. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There are many, I suppose, difficulties when you got COVID, and we all got COVID one time or another. One of the, one of the difficulties that's kind of a pain, but it wasn't that big of a deal, was you lost your taste, right? You lost your taste. And like uh, people would often tell me, they, the only thing they could taste was like the saltiest pickle in the world. Or the only thing they could taste was like the sweetest candy in the world. It could give them a little bit of sweetness, but they couldn't taste normal things. Isaiah 5 and verse 20 says that just as COVID takes away your taste, sin takes away your uh, taste morally so that sin infects you with a numbness and a foolishness by which you lose your ability to taste reality and bitter tastes sweet to you and sweet tastes bitter to you. The moral code is inverted and reversed in your very taste buds and in your wantings and your volition and your aspiring and in your thinking. This is what, uh, to, to go to a prophetic passage in the New Testament, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verses 9 through 12 talk about the end times when the lawless one is revealed. And it says in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked <clears throat> deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so to be saved. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11, therefore God sends them a strong delusion and they believe what is false, in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It says they, they refused to love the truth and be saved, therefore they became deluded. God sent upon them a delusing influence, and they could not believe the truth, or to, and they only took pleasure in unrighteousness, not in righteousness. Perhaps your mind has already gone like mine has to Romans chapter 1, reading from Romans 1, verse 21 and following. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity for the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, their women exchanging natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise giving up natural relations with women and they were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
Romans 1 verse 29. So they became filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only practice them, but they give hearty approval to all who practice them. Evil is called good and protected by the powerful forces of cultural society, whether they be governmental or entertainment. Look at where, Dis- look, look at where the corporation Disney came down on that, on that law in Florida. It was disgusting. Whether it's governmental authorities or, or, or the wealthy and powerful in corporations, they call evil good and good evil. Isaiah 5 verse 20 tells us the moral code has indeed been reversed. How does a pastor um, illustrate that in 2022? 12 seconds on Google maybe? It's not hard. One illustration I mentioned because it's very close to home. It's not San Francisco or Manhattan. Lafayette. It's not really a I don't know if we'd call them a sister church, but they're definitely a partner church to us, the Baptist Church in Lafayette. We often send a van full of our people down to Lafayette to get biblical counseling training. That's where the biblical counseling training center is. And this, that, this new story was last month. And in Lafayette, the city council proposal, which would also penalize churches, would penalize anyone who talked to a minor to help them overcome unwanted uh, gender dysphoria or same-sex attraction. The penalty on the table was $1,000 financial penalty per day of those who violated the ordinance. Now, our friends at, at the church in Lafayette, they, they rallied the city and they got the, the, the city council ordinance didn't pass. But it'll come back. It'll come back. And I'm not talking... I'm not talking in this sermon exactly about the sexuality issue or the biblical counseling issue. What I'm talking about is when that ordinance was up, uh, half of Lafayette, Indiana, was aggressively saying, this ordinance is righteous and good, and our society will be better if we pass this ordinance. And the other half of Lafayette, the half that I would join, was saying this ordinance is evil and harmful. And children and parents and every neighborhood and every block in our city will be degraded and harmed if this ordinance passes. One side was calling evil good, and the other side was calling evil evil. We see it everywhere. The illustrations are not hard to come by. You, can't, you, you couldn't have watched the news, I don't think, in the last couple of months without the, you know, the who follows the Ivy League women, uh, women's swimming championship. Answer, no one. Who followed it this year? Everyone. <laughs> because the swimmer who's now named Leah Thomas, swimming as a woman, as recently as 2019, Leah Thomas, in the same body, swam for the University of Pennsylvania as a man. This brings us right into Isaiah 5. 
Again, not, not talking about the specifics of that individual, but saying, look, look at how people talk about that and what is called evil and what is called good. The side that I would fall on would say, uh, it's unjust and unfair and unrighteous to all the women competing to let that man compete against them. And not only for the athletes, but it is also a deadly unraveling of societal structure of what God has created good as male and female. I would be, I would be calling uh, evil, evil, and good, good in making that argument. But others, neighbors on my street, would be clearly and loudly making a counter-argument and saying, this individual, Leah Thomas, uh, uh, letting this individual compete against women is a tremendous triumph of justice, and it's the right thing to do. It would be evil and a failure of society to not let this individual compete against women. Again, not, we're not just talking about the individual person and the individual athletic contest. We're saying one side is saying this is good and compassionate and right and will be a better society if we let everyone decide every day what they want to be and who they want to be. And the other side is saying, no, that, that, that justice and compassion and righteousness would come under the authority of God who creates us male and female. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In the coverage that I've seen, and I'm not an expert on the news, but this has been the case for decades now. In the coverage that I've seen, it takes about 20,000 words in the New York Times to make the argument that evil is good and good is evil. You know how many words it takes to make the argument that good is good? I can explain it to my four-year-old grandson in words that he can explain, in words that he can understand in uh, 12 words or less. There's a simplicity and a, like the light of shalom and balance in God's law. It is not hard or harsh or difficult. But when you want to make a when you want to make an argument that evil is good and that good is evil, when you want to join the insanity of being at war with logic and creation and human consciousness and biological reality, it takes multiple degrees to become that stupid, right? So what do we do? Do we just rage against the dying of the light? Do we just huddle in some kind of conservative cloister? What do we do? What do we do? Well, I don't know what we do to, to change the, the political structures or to uh, redeem culture, whatever that means. I'm not sure what we do for that. But I do know what we do. Godliness starts with a willingness to look up at God and to look down at the Bible. And sanity begins with an absolute commitment. Verse 21, I will not be wise in my own eyes.
Sanity begins with an absolute commitment of humility that looks up to God in worship, that looks down at the word of God in humble submission. Like Corinthians says, we must become fools in order to become wise. We must receive the mocking, scorning of the world to receive the wisdom of Christ. God blesses his people when they humble themselves to hear his word. So I know, I don't know how to save the, the culture, but I know what we need to do. We need to look up to God, look down at his word. We need to believe the gospel. To speak a gospel word here in Isaiah 5, Isaiah is saying, if you had obeyed God, you would have been blessed. But because you disobeyed God, the wheels are coming off and everything is falling apart. To speak the word of the gospel in this situation, which is a word of correction, is to remember God blesses his people unilaterally by his goodness and by his grace. Think of Eden. Adam and Eve didn't earn the garden. He just gave it to them. And then he said, walk in my ways, follow my command about the tree, and you'll be blessed. Think of the Ten Commandments, Exodus. God blessed his people by leading them out of slavery. He set them free. And then he gave them the law. The, 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 gospel, the, the gospel read on that is this, and you know this, church. To obey every commandment of God is not the ladder by which we save ourselves. To obey every commandment of God is the pathway that those who have been saved by his grace now walk on. Don't put works in the place of faith. Don't put law in the place of grace. That isn't even really the message of the Old Testament, and it is certainly not the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ that we've already celebrated at this communion table, that he died, that we would live, that his obedience is what sets us free. To believe the gospel, to receive God's wisdom in his word, Christian worldview. You know, people often uh, will give me a call or an email, like every, the society's so crazy. How do I, how do I know, you know, what's right? And I've, I've, I've recommended for years that, that uh, Albert Moeller, his website and his daily analysis of the news from a Christian worldview is very good. And uh, there's another one that Amy turned me on to. It's called, the, it's called the Just Thinking Podcast. The podcast is like two hours long. I can only listen to it for like 20 minutes at a time. So it takes like, me like a week to get through one. But these guys, one of the guys, Daryl, uh, a wonderful African-American brother who is the head of uh, social media outreach for Grace to You, I think, out in California. And they have over 100 podcasts and each one of them is like, It'll be critical race theory or transgenderism or postmodern theory or whatever, and they'll just attack it from a biblical standpoint. It's, there's good teaching uh, on that Just Thinking podcast. There's a lot of good resources out there, but the, the most important thing is that in humility, you look up to God, and in humility, you look down to his word. The other thing to remember is that, uh, the other thing to remember is that, uh, when a world, in a world that calls evil good, 
and good evil. The world needs a church that clearly and courageously calls evil, evil, and good, good. The world will not be reached by a church that edits and crafts its message to tickle the ears of the powerful in the world. The world needs a church that compassionately, courageously, and clearly calls evil, evil, and good, good. In a world that thinks that evil, they actually think that evil is good, and they actually think that good is evil. The world needs a the world needs the church to be, to use the philosophical language, an, alter, an alternative structure of, of credence and, and of thinking and living so that, so that church is not enough for us to say evil is evil and good is good. Though we do need to do that. What the church has to do, we, ju- we just talked about this in our ABFs through that church discipline study in 1 Corinthians 5. The world needs the church to say that evil is evil and good is good. And, and in that speaking, the world needs a church that validates and shows that evil is evil and that good is good by the way that she conducts herself, by the way that she gives so outrageously generously to the poor by the way that she shelters under her wings the mistreated and the abused. The the world needs a church that actually shows how destructive sin is and that actually shows how beautiful and how dignifying the holiness and the righteousness of God is. A world that is compromised and confused needs a church that is clarified and courageous about light and dark, good and evil, sin and salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, as these feeble uh, lips have sung a song of my beloved, I pray, living God, that every heart here would love you with all of its strength. I pray that every mind here would see and believe and trust the veracity and the integrity of your word. And I pray that every will here would choose to step away from sin and step into your your blessing and your peace. We pray that the world around us would be enabled to hear the good news of the gospel and we pray that the world around us would see in our lives how beautiful your gospel is, the radiance of your holiness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.